and welcome to Crop It Like It's Hot, the arable podcast hosted by me, Alice Dyer, and brought to you by The Crop Tech Show, Arable Farming Magazine, and sponsored by Yara, the crop nutrition company. Before we get started on today's episode, don't forget if you're on the basis register, you can claim one CPD point for tuning in by emailing the name of the podcast and your account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. Now, in today's episode, we're going to cover a topic that all Brits love talking about, all farmers naturally obsess over. It's certainly one of the main points of conversation in my house, and that is the weather. Weather is possibly the biggest challenge out there for farmers, and just in the last few years, we've seen one of the hottest summers on record in 2018, one of the mildest and wettest winters in 2019, and now two exceptionally dry springs in a row. So in this episode, we're going to find out how weather patterns are changing, what this means for the crops we grow, and how we as farmers can be more resilient to the changing climate. Hi, I'm Natalie Wood, Yara's country arable agronomist, and I'm here to remind you about fertiliser quality characteristics. The three main things you need in a good quality fertiliser are a high strength score, meaning it can be spread over larger bout widths. Uniformity of size and shape of the particles for even spreading and therefore even crops. And finally, bulk density. Think ping pong ball versus golf ball. The heavier, denser particles will spread further and be less affected by wind. Yorabella Axan has all these qualities and more. Visit our website yara.co.uk for more information. Now, kicking off today's episode, my first guest is Graham Madge, Senior Press Officer at the Met Office. Graham, I'm hoping you've got some good news for us today about this season's outlook. But first, I wanted to look up weather patterns. We hear all the time how the climate is changing. We know it is. But I thought... What we've seen over the last few years is quite a dramatic change in the global and UK climate. So globally, we've seen temperatures rise by about one degree since pre-industrial times. That's one degree Celsius. We've seen a similar level of rise in the UK. um, And obviously, the UK climate broadly mirrors the global climate, but doesn't mirror it exactly. But we are seeing a continual rise of temperatures through across all of the seasons. And that is leading to some significant changes. So with that, we would expect more in the way of heat waves, which we've seen. So we know that the heat wave that we had in 2018 is 30 times more likely to occur with the current climate than it would have been with the lower concentrations of greenhouse gases before the Industrial Revolution. Mm. And we will continue to see those patterns develop with the more greenhouse gases which are put into the atmosphere. Okay, and we're in the midst of another very dry spring. Last year, the weather was just awful for farmers right through the season. You've kind of alluded to this already. Um, But are these adverse weather events where it's either really, really wet or really, really dry going to become more common? And to what extent? What the climate projections tell us and the Met Office is heavily involved with trying to produce projections of climate for the UK and around the world is that the UK's climate is going to continue to change and broadly we can expect hotter drier summers and broadly warmer wetter winters now that is averaging everything out but within that we know that we will continue to get extremes of heat and extremes of drought and extremes of heavy rainfall so that is going to complicate the picture further we do seem to be seeing a pattern for um, increased dryness over spring and summer Um, and what that will do is that will reduce the average amount of rainfall that we get in those seasons but hidden within that is the fact that we think that rainfall will become more extreme. So rainfall totals over that period are likely to be comprised of shorter, sharper events 
uh, inspired by sort of severe thunderstorms and convection rather than average rainfall. And that will present another challenge uh, to farmers in terms of water storage because you're going to get smaller amounts of water but in in larger bursts. So hanging on to that water will inevitably be um, a, a further challenge for the farming community. Yeah, and the world's kind of waking up to climate change. We've got lots of targets, there's net zero targets looming and things like that. Is it the case that if we achieve or even exceed these targets that we could reverse some of the impact that climate change is having on adverse weather or would it just kind of stop it getting worse? What the observations tell us from around the world over the last 30 to 40 years is that climate change is happening here and now. We're already seeing it wherever you are and no one can really escape from the climate change that we've seen. That's already baked into the, to the climate system. The purpose of trying to be as aggressive as possible in reducing further emissions is that by every emissions cut that can be made, we're lessening future impacts. So even if we were to stop all the emissions tomorrow, the climate system would still roll on because carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases will remain in the atmosphere for decades. Mm. But by reducing emissions, we will be lowering the extreme impact of things like sea level rise, of um, extremes of temperature and um, rainfall. So every emissions cut that can be made will be lowering the worst case scenario. And and that is the um, pattern that we're in now. So it's within, obviously, everybody's interests to try and reach um, agreements where emissions are lowered and obviously nations are working towards net zero where emissions effectively will be neutral by 2050 but everything that can be done will save the worst impacts but we can't reverse it and we can't stop it okay and I I don't like this phrase because I feel like it's being used an awful lot recently but it, it probably is the case that this kind of weather is the new normal then it is the case of the new normal and and within that there's a very important message because climate mitigation reducing the amount of greenhouse gases that are going into the atmosphere each year through emissions is important but as i've said we know that climate change is happening Mm -hmm. so adaptation will be a huge part of societal response to the changing climate and from an agricultural perspective that might be working with and finding new ways of managing within the climate system as it will develop. It may be looking for new opportunities. There may be new opportunities for new crops or methods of farming which um, can help work with the climate. But it's really a case that the, the agricultural sector has huge opportunities to develop to roll with the punches that there are going to be with facing issues like reduced water supply, uh, increasing heat stress, for example, for cattle. Um, We're looking at um, perhaps the increase uh, of diseases like potato blight, for example, which we think will rise substantially with increased humidity and increased temperatures. So it's very much a case of trying to yes trying to lower emissions as much as possible that's vital but also everybody in society needs to adapt and perhaps no more than farmers yeah i think farmers are definitely aware of the challenges of the weather more than anyone else um so predicting the weather now obviously we've got stations and satellites and all this kind of science and technology giving us lots of data um but i've read a few things um One, that COVID halting air travel has made the weather harder to forecast and also that climate change means that things like flooding events are much harder to predict now too. Is there any truth in either of those statements? Yes, there is a degree of truth. So um, the global weather forecasting community 
as you rightly say, does rely heavily on the aviation industry because all of the long-haul aircraft that are in operation carry instruments which never measure the atmosphere um, and provide information in real time back to organisations like the Met Office so that we can help inform our forecasts and inform the computer models which drive the forecasts. We have found other ways of filling that void um, by increasing use of and reliance on satellites and weather balloons and other such uh, technologies. Um, in terms of uh, other impacts, um, yes, it's it's a case that uh, we were initially affected, but there, there was um, opportunities to gain the information in other ways, which is now what's being put in place. Mm. And this this April has been terribly dry. I mean, I can't I can't even remember the last time it rained here. Have, have you got any kind of data on how dry it's been? I know we're not quite at the end of the month yet. It's the 27th of April today, so we've got a few days to go. We um, do have some provisional data. We keep rolling uh, observations and calculations on how wet or dry or warm it's been. And what we know at the moment is that the UK as a whole has had 18% of its rainfall, which averaged out across the UK is 12.9 millimetres. Now, that is an average across the UK. And when you drill down into that and looking particularly in areas like um, the southwest with its importance for livestock farming and the southeast and eastern England for the importance on arable. Mm. I can tell you, for example, that Leicestershire, obviously a very important arable county, has only had 3% of its average April rainfall, and that's just 1.6 millimetres. Now, as you say, we're not at month end yet, but uh, there will be more rain to come. Um, and that will be welcome by many, including the farming sectors. But um, it's not going to bring us up anywhere near to where we should be and what farmers will be relying on to um, help the growth of fodder crops for livestock or indeed arable crops. Yeah, it's a bit of a worrying picture, isn't it? And this is probably the golden question for a lot of our listeners. Um and I hope you've got good news for us. But what is the long-range weather forecast for the season? Have we got some rain on the way? The indication is that there is some rain on the way. Um, we think that there's a, around a 25% chance of wetter-than-average conditions over the next three months uh, from May, June, July. Um, but that is only a, a slight chance. Um, there is obviously a chance that it could be drier. One of the challenges that any forecaster will face, including the Met Office, is that as we go into spring and summer, the big global drivers of weather that we rely on to um, produce long-range forecasts and outlooks is something that um, becomes less reliable uh, as we go into spring and summer. So trying to glean information from those big patterns of variability like the weather patterns across the North Atlantic um, are less in summer so therefore we have less certainty in the forecast going forward but there is some signal for chance of wetter than average conditions um, but there's also similarly a 10% chance that it could be drier than average so what we would say is it looks as though there may be um, some room for optimism that we could have more rain in the forecast, but uh, that, I'm afraid, isn't a guarantee. OK, but not too much rain either, Graham. Thank you. That's really interesting stuff. Fantastic. Now, next up, we've got Professor Derek Stewart, Director of the Advanced Plant Growth Centre at the James Hutton Institute, and he's going to tell us what all these things that Graham just spoke about is going to mean for the crops that we grow. Derek, is that you? Hey, there's Alice. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Fine. Yes, very good. Excellent. So we've just heard from Graham at the Met Office that we're likely to see these warmer, wetter winters and hotter, drier summers going forward. And some of these conditions are conducive to certain pests and diseases, some less so. 
As these weather patterns become the new norm, what problems can we expect to become maybe more prevalent in arable scenarios? Um, I think the problem we're seeing with climate change is actually things like harvest dates are starting to spread. Yeah. Um, and so instead of getting a, a concise date when you go, right, that's it, we're going to harvest today, you're starting to, well, let's take a step back. The flowering aspect is broadening, which means the harvest date's spreading. So if you decide to harvest on a set day, you're going to get a wider range of quality crop getting pulled in, uh, which means your potentially your level of rejects will go up depending on what you're going for. Um, and so your marketable yield could potentially diminish, diminish quite significantly, um, which means the supply chain then has problems. So uh, everyone will feel that hit all the way down the chain or all the way up the chain, rather. Um, so it's uh, there are problems. If, and that, now that's all based on using existing varieties for whatever crop you're looking at. Um, what are the targets we need to look at going forward if we are looking at climate change? So we're, you've got, uh, as, as you've described, uh, the weather patterns changing, but you've also got the extremes as well, where the crops are being subjected to um, potentially heavy rain or hail and then intense sun, all within the matter of a couple of hours. Um, that's a torture-based scenario for anyone, um, but for the plant that can't move, um, again, that's another hit on yield. And so trying to breed in what I tend to call climate plasticity, being able to take that hit but then continue to grow and produce a crop is very difficult, and it's a multi-trait component. So breeding for it would be very, very difficult. And that's over and above anything else to do with disease. It's just the environment alone. So it's going to be some hard days going forward. Right, okay. That's not necessarily what we want to hear. But in terms of the crops we actually grow, um, wheat grows in kind of all sorts of climates around the world. So I'm assuming that will probably be okay in a kind of long-term resilience um, point of view. But could the changing climate perhaps present, you know, new opportunities um, in different regions or even nationally? I'm thinking along the lines of, you know, crops like soya that enjoy a bit of a warmer climate. Well, I think you've already got people in the UK starting to play with soya um, just to see how it would work. And I think that, that that's absolutely sensible. I think what we're going to see um, as we go forward, um, and more predominantly after I'm well out of the game, is a widening band of no crops around the middle of the earth. Well, for us, everything's going to move north. Every, all the existing varieties will fail to grow or not grow as well as they are, but they may deliver the same benefits if you grow them much more north. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, as things creep up. So I think some of the existing varieties, you will start to see a, just an evolving pattern of agriculture. good example of that is down in Kent where you're starting to see large amounts of grapes growing in areas where people were growing strawberries before. Um, so from the arable area, it's exactly as you said, you, you may start to see other crops coming in. <clears throat> the other thing on the block, if you if you look at industry per se globally, mm. you've, you've got the big players like Unilever and all of them deciding they don't want fossil fuel based. They want to dim diminish the use of fossil fuel based products. But the products they make still have to be made from something. Yeah. So what we might see is the the expansion of things that may be crops or crop wastes or co-products being used to start to being the new sustainable chemical feedstocks. Um, so if you want to, a good example is sugar beet. Now we're growing sugar at the minute for sugar for food. Yeah. Um, the if you're driving on leaded car, currently there's five percent bioethanol. That will move to ten percent. I think I'm right in saying all of that is imported from France. Why don't we start growing sugar beet, produce our own bioethanol, and actually that can go into fuel, but, but from bioethanol, and this comes from my background as a chemist, bioethanol is a fantastic starting point to making other complex chemicals that normally would have come from fossil fuel-based systems, sources. So there's a whole industry out there, the chemical industry, that needs to be supplied and if you're going to be using sustainable resources, it's either going to be in the sea or it's going to be on the land. And if it's on the land, it's going to be crops. So the markets will both change over the next couple of decades, I think. 
as to what people will be growing and what their off-takers will be. It won't just be food companies, it could be chemical companies. Yeah, and I guess we're already kind of starting to see that to some extent with the rollout of um, E10 petrol coming in September. You mentioned um, strawberries and grapes and things. Um, Irrigation, you know, some countries, New Zealand, irrigation of broadacre crops is not that uncommon. And now some growers here in the UK, um, they're getting quite desperate at the moment and they're giving cereal crops a bit of a drink. Do you think this would ever become commonplace here in the UK? Judging by some of the summers, I don't think there's going to be any way around it, to be honest. I mean, we had that horrendous problem where it was phenomenally hot and dry. Um, and, and actually, people were irrigating, but they tapped out. So even if you want to irrigate, there'll be some places where sim- there simply will not be enough. So how we manage and use water is going to have to be looked at. So can we start looking at things like grey water and get it cleaned up and start using that on crops? Um, so absolutely, irrigation is going to have to come into it. But we'll have to do it smarter. Um some of the ways that might be interesting in doing it is actually, can we start to play around with the topsoil? If we can get more carbon uh, into the topsoil so it will, it will hold water longer, um, that may be ways around it as well. Well, not around it, but help help mitigate the problem. Yeah. So so when, when, you, when you have water, it, it doesn't just suddenly evaporate like someone's poured their poured a drink on a concrete slab you know what I mean yeah and I guess with irrigation it would also be a case of you know water storage as well we'd have to have kind of the infrastructure in place to keep all this water over the winter yeah I mean I think we need to look to places where they've done that very well I mean Australia is an obvious one where you've got large cereal production and they've got they, they had some serious water problems year on year on year um, so th- th- there are solutions out there I think we need to look at. And so we might s- need to start seeing farms creating their own small reservoirs um, and then managing that water more sensibly going forward. Yeah. And, uh, I would think. And how sort of, I mean, we're talking about all this, but how far off do you see this? So how scary is the problem? Um, yeah, pretty much. Well, well, I think if you look, even look back of the last, do a 10-year one. So I'm sure it was 2019 where there was, it was places in Yorkshire that were just scalded with heat. Uh, they had no water, the crops were failing. Um, then you go back to, well, when was the flooding? Was that 2015? Then you get 2012 where they couldn't get yeah, tractors on field because yeah. it was so wet. Um, I don't think we have to wait very long. I think it's happening. Um, again, it's these. It's it's not so much necessarily the change in the climate is slow, and you don't really get a feel for it. But you're starting to see the crops not delivering. It's the extremes that we're starting to see more often, and they are very hard things to to predict with and deal with. So extremes in t- in terms of uh, droughts, well, store the water, and we can manage that. Extremes in terms of flooding. That's a different scenario. That's a really difficult one to do. But I think actually, I think DEFRA are looking to think about more um, dredging and drain-off systems, going going back to what we did many years ago, so our ability for water to drain off land can, can happen more sensibly. So it's actually getting the sludge out of uh, streams and so on, so the water can drain off and run away. Um, some stuff we've just let slip. I think we have to go back and start doing it again. Yeah. And then sort of going back to plant breeding, as you say, we're going to need to breed for quality. We might need to breed for more disease tolerance. So um, Graham mentioned potato blight could potentially come become much worse. But it seems like, you know, these varieties, there's only so many traits that they can have. They're not going to be the absolute sort of golden variety. Um, so how do we kind of prioritise which trait... Um, Well, I suppose arguably the market will dictate, but the market will dictate what it wants now and not necessarily 15 years hence when the variety they've wanted now can be bred and delivered. You know what I mean? Yeah. So to be honest, I think a lot of the stuff that... Potato is a good example because their targets have tended to be very similar for a long time. Um, And whether it's quality, marketable yield, disease resistance, 
Um, I think only now are we starting to see environmental durability coming in, so its ability to maybe grow under warmer temperatures. Potato is a great example of that one. If you tip, if you start to tip the temperature up, you cause real problems. You're beyond a certain temperature point, the yield just just falls away phenomenally fast. Um, but there's work, for example, done in my institute, the James Hutton Institute, where we're looking at um, high temperature tolerance, and that seems to be doing fantastically well. We think we've cracked aspects of that. Um, so it's key to, key to then fast-tracking that stuff into common and crossing that material into elite material so it's delivering both to whoever's needing it whether it's the um oven chip process thing crisps or the fresh market thing for potato and, and the same stories would be there for wheat going into bread wheat i mean i think they will have aspects there where they're looking at water water use efficiency and uptake are going to be key points for them for grain development and then and then allowing the grain to develop the nutritional aspect needed for bread um, the work is going on i think we just need to be able to accelerate it faster into varietal materials so it's, it's it's a scary story but the solutions are there we need to get them going from research to industry faster i would say yeah no that's definitely true and i'm glad that you um finished on a slightly positive note there because i was getting a bit worried <laughs> <laughs> yes it was great to speak to you Alice yeah you too thank you very much Ambassador is the joint highest yielding variety on the recommended list offering growers increased security in suboptimal nitrogen conditions Ambassador possesses NFLEX the latest trait to come from Limograin's market leading oilseed rape breeding programme it is a fully loaded hybrid combining NFLEX with turnip yellow virus pod shatter and RLM7 FOMA resistance Learn more and register for Limograin's Oilseed Rate virtual demo on Wednesday the 5th of May by visiting lgseeds.co.uk forward slash OSRVTT. And now on to weather data. As technology becomes more and more sophisticated, we're seeing agronomic models being developed to help us make decisions in the field. So my next guest, Harry Atkinson, Business Development Manager at Sencrop, is going to tell us how data like this can help us farm better. Morning, Alice. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad at all, thank you. Excellent. So we're going to talk a bit about weather data now. Um, weather stations, we all kind of know what they do um, and what they tell us. And they're really handy for things like time management. But I'd imagine a lot of users, myself included, they look at certain things a lot more than others. But are there any yeah. insights that weather stations might tell us that we might not necessarily realise the value of? So any kind of hidden gems of information? Um yeah, I mean the information. The information the stations are that are collecting. Um, I mean, particularly when you come into the different sensors that are actually on the stations. Um, when you've got humidity, temperature uh, crossed against the rainfall, uh, you can work out other factors like dew points, uh, wet bulb temperatures through that growing degree day. So through these sensors, you can actually use algorithms to also predict other factors around that. And it's weather data is kind of already used to a certain degree in. Um certain pest and disease thresholds and monitoring so we've got you know the hutton criteria and stuff for potato blight but do you think we're likely to see these agronomic models coming through much more as these services become more sophisticated i'm kind of imagining maybe one day we'll have a world where everything is just done based on an alert system rather than kind of prophylactically yeah. Yeah, I, th I think you've hit the nail on the head there, really. It's, it's more of looking at sort of when you talk about agronomic models, specifically what we're doing, it's more on scale of sort of alert systems. Um, so obviously we're collecting the data through the sensors that we've got in the field. Um, but through that, a lot of, like I said, the temperature, the humidity, the rainfall, um, through these factors, you can actually then determine, um, you know, uh, ideal situations for disease in the crop. Um, and through that, we can alert on when you know when conditions are the worst it's not necessarily guaranteeing the, the diseases in the crop but the conditions are perfect for those particular diseases so now that the um now that we've done the first the first few of these um it's just once we find the research applying it so yeah uh, definitely definitely going to see more coming through and what kind of diseases have you guys been looking at 
Um, so obviously one of the big talking points in the UK, particularly, is potato blight. Uh, so that was sort of one of our first focuses, uh, particularly as as the farm set up, we we had a focus on where where potatoes and vegetables when we first came to the UK. Um, so that was that was a big talking point. Um, but then also across Europe, um, we we've got one coming through. Obviously, Septoria is a big talking point as well um, in yeah. in winter wheat. Um, so we've we've worked with a German organisation, Isip, uh, on a Septoria alert system. Um, and then also we work quite heavily with vineyards and uh, fruit growers. So frost was a big big factor. Obviously, there is a, a certain point where that comes into the arable setup as well. So some frost alerts as well um, have been the first ones that we'll be launching in the UK. So these are all based on the very specific location of the farm rather than kind of data for that area, are they? So you would get an alert based on that field where the weather station is? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, at the moment, at the moment, it is sort of we're very focused on infield data for that particular farm. So um, it's the farmer controlling where the sensors are in, in, in the field. Um, but ultimately, when we look at the larger picture, particularly at Sencrop, is um, working with sort of connecting net, connected networks. Um, we call them private networks. So working with partners, whether that be a buying group, an agronomy group, whoever it is, and build up a picture of a local area. Um, and we, we're, you know, at least 18 months into developing these private networks. So we're starting to see the value of local data as well as infield data. So we'll be able to build up a bigger picture as well as relevant infield on-farm uh, alerts. Yeah, so it might be the case that growers and agronomists can kind of track disease as it moves, you know, maybe across the country or across the region. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I mean, we're, we're, we're currently over 16,000 stations across the world and just shy of 1,000 in the UK. Uh, and as you see the density increase, the value of the value of the alerts and the data you're collecting also increases with that, like you say, for building up a picture of disease movement across an area or even factors that go into, um, you know, the, the disease occurring. Yeah, the environment, climate change, net zero, all these things are very much at the forefront of farmers and the nation's minds. Is this very location-specific weather data likely to play a part in that? Yeah, I mean, it's... Generally, the sort of the ethos of the company is have a positive ag environmental impact and, and reduce costs on farm, ideally. Um, so when we're talking about that, we're looking at a more just a more targeted approach, particularly when you come to spraying. Obviously, a big part of the UK now is moving towards contractor services mm. uh, more than on-farm equipment. So when you've got spraying contractors, combine contractors, sugar beet harvest contractors, they can have a more targeted approach rather than moving into an area and having to, you know, work around the conditions, they can make the conditions work for them. Yeah. Um, which is a, a massive factor. Um, and also, there's a there's a, a legislative point of view to look at collecting the data, because as soon as the stations are turned on, we're recording the data. Um, so when you're looking at irrigation and water management, you've got a record of, of rainfall um, in the area, so you can justify irrigation. Um, uh, particularly in the Netherlands where they've got some quite tight spraying legislation it backs up that you know you're spraying in the right conditions um, so it's having that that's the that's the uh, environmental impact but also a more targeted approach to save cost um, you know we've got some spray we've got some uh, basic spray indicators within the application to give you an idea on the forecast particularly when's going to be good spraying days um, you can have more targeted approaches with um, you know fertilizer applications um, if you know, you know, you've got a really dry spell and it's not going to do anything, you can you can um, see the backed up data for that. Um, so, yeah, just having a more targeted approach on farm. Yeah. And that's the thing with kind of the whole um, use of IPM and recording it. It's often said that farmers use IPM every day, but it's not recorded in any way. So I guess this data can kind of be used to back up their decision and record it in some way. Well, that's it exactly, and, and the, stage, the, the the data is recorded within the application, but particularly on on, on our, our service as well, you can export the data to a V file, so it can be used for your own records. Um, your V file, when I say that, I mean Excel. Um, but you can you can you can keep that for your own records, um, and also across Europe, and um, it's, it's coming in the UK. We have what we call decision support tools, which are like farm management systems, mm-hmm. um, and we can automatically link the data into these systems through an API connection. Um, so, you know, if you've got these other services, you can automatically upload your, your weather data into these, these platforms as well. Yeah. 
And the final question, do you think that farming will ever be completely data-led um, or will that farmer and agronomist eye always come first? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, and I think I think it will become a more and more key factor in farm management, as we've already seen it you know, happen over the last five years. Um, but I think it's going to take a lot of trust it's going to take a lot of time to build up the trust with the farmer to change, you know, a, a goodness knows how long uh, mentality around farming. And I think if you took it completely away from the farmer's eye and the agronomist's eye, then you're losing the skill of farming. But if you can back it up with a more targeted approach, that's what we're looking to do. Not completely change it to data driven, um, you know, but eventually, eventually just give them a more targeted approach. I've got a large potato producer who was quite open and said, you know, he, he still goes out and checks, uh, you know, ridge conditions and everything else, but he can target an area where it looks like there could be a problem rather than having to drive around a whole 30-mile radius to check every field. You can see where there could be a problem and you can target it. So that will be the first stage. And eventually, as sensors become more accurate, as we get more sensors and that sort of thing, it could go more towards completely data-driven. Uh, but I think for, for now, it's just trying to back up what the farmer's doing in a more targeted way. Yeah. Um, and particularly, like you said about um, you know other uses, it's it's, it's been proven um, to be quite a, a handy tool around planting. Although there's nothing in the ground, but you can have a targeted approach for planting. Um, same same farmer used to go from high land down to the the lowest land uh, to follow the temperature trend for planting potatoes. Um, but this year, having stations out in the field, they saw what they've been doing for the last ten years is actually you know there's lower areas that are warmer. Uh, so you actually go there rather than where you've gone before. So it's changing trends, but there's still uh, a mentality that you've got to build up that trust to, to for it to be used. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a, it's a big thing to put all your faith into one bit of kit. But no, it's very exciting. Thank you very much, Harry. No worries. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thank you. And now for my final guest today, everyone I've just spoken to has pretty much alluded to the importance of healthy soils in helping crops to grow during adverse weather. So here I have soil scientist, Professor Jenny Dungate of Soil Health Expert, and she's going to tell us how we can make our soils more resilient. It's great to have you, Jenny. Now, we've seen soils go from flooded and waterlogged to now rock hard dry as anything it's not good for a plant and it's surely not good for the soil so what impact do these conditions have on the health of our soils well the point is if you have a healthy soil it's really resilient to adverse weather conditions because british weather is very unpredictable and if you ever look back through you know through time you know you've we've had droughts in the past we've had you know, I've had freezing winters in the past, but managed to survive it. And you know that saying, you know, if you don't like the weather in, in, in Britain, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, our soils are actually very adapted to kind of, you know, changing weather conditions. So um, I think the point really is that unhealthy soils are vulnerable to extreme weather, not healthy soils, right? So, so you know, if you start off with healthy soil, you're likely to be in a much better condition anyway. So when... Um, you know, so there are, you know, there are key indicators of if your soil is unhealthy, you know, for example, sort of, you know, low organic matter, because you've been, you know, tilling it for, for many years and removing residues during the harvest, you know, so you get low organic matter, um, which supports soil biology, and both of those work together to glue, you know, the soil particles together to give us a good soil structure make nutrients available to plants and store carbon and so on so um you know all of these things if you have a healthy soil it's already doing the things that can help us to cope with bad weather so um you know for example you know so if you've got if you've got good organic matter and it's you know it, and your soil bulge is working together etc your soils are likely to have better structure so they'll drain more quickly you know when it has been raining and They'll also allow rainfall to get more deep, you know, by infiltration into the soil so that roots can get to it in dry weather. So, it's a, you know, it's, it's a win-win, really. And, and also, of course, organic matter holds its own, many times its own weight in water as a store. 
So, you know, that's available during jails as well. So, I mean, it probably, if you look around, you can see the benefits of that this spring. People with more organic matter in their soils are likely to be in better shape than people who, who you know, who, who perhaps haven't. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know what I'm like. It's always about organic matter with me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, you know, and, and of course, you know, organic matter can't be lost from soils when they're flooded. So, you know... All these flooded soils with water running out over and through them, you know, the soluble parts of the carbon and nutrients aren't getting washed away. Um, so all of the fine particles that are being held together by the organic matter and the soil biology start to fall apart, you know, slaking as we know it, and that's clogging soil pores, which means that soils are more likely to become flooded because the structure's been lost. And then things like soil erosion, which actually should be very rare in a temperate environment like the UK because, you know, we have got good moisture and we have got good nutrients and, you know, we do, it's really, it's quite a good place to grow plants. You know, if you have bare soils that are low in organic matter, they become vulnerable to loss mm. by, by wind and water erosion as well. So, um, so yeah, uh, unhealthy soils are more likely to suffer than healthy soils during adverse weather. And... What are the attributes of a healthy soil that can kind of cope better with these weather, extreme weather events? You've obviously just mentioned organic matter, but is there anything else um, that we should be looking at that will help us recognise whether that soil is going to be in a better position going into a very wet winter, for example? Okay, yeah, well, you're absolutely right. It's all about place, you know. So um, people talk about soil health, um, but it's, you know... And it's, it always means the same thing. It's where your biology, your chemistry, and your physics are all working together in harmony, right? So, so this, but this does change from place to place because soils change from place to place. Climate changes from place to place, you know. And also, what the land is used for changes from place to place. So, you can imagine if you had, you know, if you've got a healthy, a healthy but wet organic upland soil that's developed out of granite, it's going to be very different from a thin calcareous soil that's, that's over chalk or limestone. You know, so you're going to use those soils for different things and they're going to have different qualities, different properties, you know, that, that, that aren't necessarily comparable. So you need to, there are certain things, of course, like soil structure, which extends across all different soil types, but, you know, other indicators like soil organic matter will vary from place to place. So you can't... You can't measure, you know, you can't look at a field which is in the fens, for example, and somewhere that's, that's in, you know, on the South Downs yeah. and expecting the same sort of values, you know. So, um, you know, it's um, the, the, the things that you, you do to understand your soul have to be about your relationship with it, if you like. You know, you have to go out and have a look. I mean, plants themselves are a very good indicator of, you know, what's going on in the soil. So, obviously, if you've got good yields, you tend to think, great, the soil's looking fine. But if you have a, if you dig a hole, if you're doing a visual examination of soil structure, you can assess, you know, how far your roots are actually getting down, you know, into the soil. Because we want them to get into the soil. We want to find the nutrients and water that they need. We want them to anchor the plant. If, you know, if there's poor weather, it's really windy or whatever, you, you don't want the plant, you know, being washed out of the soil. So, Roots are a really important part of the plant, which is sometimes overlooked. So you need to make the soil a good place for those to grow. Um, so, um, you know, again, it's all it's all getting back to this idea that, that um, you know, if you're going to use a plant, if you're going to use a soil to grow plants, you need to make the soil um, you know, appropriate for the growth of the roots. And this is um, this idea about having this kind of the recipe for a soil, which is... Um, which is related to, you know, water and uh, and oxygen content or air content, if you like, you know, and and um, and uh, um, temperature and pH and those sorts of things. So it's you know that all of the things which a growing organism like a plant would like, or an earthworm, or a, a fungi, or you know, or, or anything else that lives in the soil, they all sort of need the same sort of conditions. You know, they need water, they need air, they need you know, they need a certain sort of temperature and they need a certain pH. But that's going to vary. That's going to vary across the country and that's going to vary our soil type and what you're using your, your soil to grow. Yeah. 
And broadly speaking, obviously, depending on soil type and location and all the things like that that we've just mentioned, um, what can a grower do to make their soils more resilient? I'm thinking kind of top tips to focus on. Okay, well, there's not a single solution, Mm. you know. So I suppose the the approach to take as the weather gets worse, <laughs> as it's going to, climate changes to use, we're going to have to use all the tools in the box. There's no, you know, there's, again, there's no sort of silver bullet, you know, there's no simple um, answer anymore. So, um, and, and interestingly, you know, I've I've been asking regenerative farmers who are quite a long way down sort of their journey mm. what they would have done differently if they were starting over. And, uh, and, and a lot of them said, well, sorting out drainage and compaction would, be, would sort of come top of the list. So if you've been if you've been tilling your soil for a long time and it's got poor condition or whatever, you know, it wouldn't do you any harm at all to do another pass. <laughs> you know, to get your drainage sorted out and to, and to get the if you've got some sort of compaction, for example, getting that sorted out before you turn to you know regenerative practices. So that's that's something that's quite interesting that's come out of sort of the work that I've been doing. Um, I mean, you know, at the end of the day. The changing weather is all about supply of water, isn't it? So managing the way the water moves in and out of the soil is absolutely essential. Um, I mean, maintaining drainage, if you have a heavy soil, particularly making sure the field drains are clear and that they're running is, is, is you know, something you need to do. And I know that, you know, it can be expensive, but, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's probably money went very well spent given the predictions about climate change and you know increasing extreme weather um obviously dealing with soil compaction whether it's crusting at the surface caused by slaking or surface compaction caused by livestock or deep soil compaction that's kind of below the plow layer you have to find out whether and where you have a problem you know and that's preferably by, by digging holes and seeing for yourself um I mean, other parts of the solution, of course, cover crops, which are which are really popular, are part of the solution. But their roots will only open up the soil if they can get into it. And um, you know, if you're asking a lot of a root to grow into a heavily compacted soil, um, you know, if you if you dig a hole and it looks compacted, try digging your finger in <laughs> and think, you know, think so. Well, is it fair to ask, you know? Uh, a cover crop plant, if, you know, to, to start to solve sixty years worth of soil <laughs> for you, probably not. You know, and there are things that we've, we're learning now. Now we're really interested in, in you know, what's going on sort of below our feet. You know, this this um, this idea that ethylene actually builds up in heavy and wet soils and actually sends a signal to stop the plant, the roots growing because it's a plant hormone. You know, so there's there's more and more and more known about the reasons why we might not be seeing um, roots doing well in, in, you know, in compacted soils and wet soils. Yeah. Um, so the science, is, the science is coming to support farmers, you know, in, in, what, they're, in what they're doing, because it's absolutely essential that, that we improve soil health for all the other things that we want to get from our soils, you know. Um, clean air and water, biodiversity, you know, storage of carbon, slow climate change down, as, as well as to grow food. Yeah, definitely. And on your, you mentioned cover crops there, that's obviously um, something that a lot more farmers are, you know, they're growing more cover crops or they want to grow more cover crops. But I know a lot of them can struggle with um, getting on the land after cover crops just because it's so slow to dry out afterwards. Is there a way to um, get the benefit of cover crops without the problems that come with it. I know that some growers are just kind of leaving land fallow over winter and letting the weeds cover the um, the soil. Is that is that a good thing to do if you feel that cover crops just really can't fit into your rotation? Well, uh, well, I mean, there's a couple of things perhaps to mention. I mean, I mean, when it comes to kind of natural natural regeneration, I mean, I mean plants um, that are adapted to a specific environment whether it's wet or dry or deep or shallow soils or whatever you know they tend to be the plants which grow in an area anyway so natural if you have a look at the natural vegetation you know that, that's around your area perhaps the weeds that come in will be the kind of things which can survive in your soil for example things like buttercups you know in, in heavy soils 
you know, you see them everywhere and they're horrendous. But they're, if you dig up their roots, they're, they're enormous. You know, they, they do penetrate right down into the soil. You know, in wet grasslands, you know, the rushes that grow there, we all hate them. But they've got air pockets that run all the way through from the leaves in, into, into the roots that delivers air into the soil. So there's all sorts of adaptations of natural plants which grow in, in you know, in, in difficult environments, making them very adapted to those environments, which is why they're weeds, because <laughs> they do so well, you know. Yeah. Um, as we got, I mean, you know, perhaps if you had a look at that and then had a look at the cover crops, which might simulate the way that, you know, things that naturally thrive in your under your particular ca- uh, conditions, uh, whether, whether there's something similar. I mean, you know, really, you know, once your soils start to work and they do start to open up, I mean, it's, it's a matter of time. Again, if you speak to people who are, you know, who've been doing this for a, a number of years... Um, you know that in the end, you know if you if you persist, make sure that you know make sure that there's always always plants on your soil. Whether you know if they're cover crops, great. If they're you know um, green manures and all the rest of it, never have a bare soil. Always have plants growing in it, whatever they are. Um, but in the end, the soil organic matter does start to build up, and you do get earthworms moving in, and they do start to um, you know make make soil uh, you know a bit in a better condition, a better structural condition, which is which is really where the problems are. Um, so you can either persist that for, for a few years or you can look at, um, you know, using cover crops um, by selecting the types which are going to be the ones which do the job to open up your soil better than perhaps other ones will. Um, I'm not, I mean, I'm not an agronomist, so, so the above-ground stuff is, <laughs> is uh, you know, is, uh, is other people's specialisms. Um, but certainly, you know, the interest in the different rooting traits that different cover crops have and how they can be used, you know, bespoke, if you like, in different situations to do particular jobs um, is certainly a big area of development. But I think the science is coming along with that. The, the, you know, the, the experiments which have been taking place on cover crops have only been happening over the last few years. So, you, you know, you may find that, you know, better advice comes along um, pretty soon, I think. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? And the more we do it, the more we'll find out. I think so, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jenny. There's some really good take-home tips in there and that seems a pretty good place to uh, end this month's episode. All right, my lovely. We'd love to speak to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks. And that, I'm afraid, is all we've got time for for today. But I hope there was some optimism there that we're ready to face climate change and also that easier weather is on its way for the rest of the season. Our next episode of the podcast will be a bumper episode in conjunction with Arable Weed Week, which takes place on June the 14th to the 18th. And you can find out more about that event at croptechshow.com forward slash A-W-W. We're loving all your podcast feedback at the moment. And if you've got a spare minute, we would also love it if you could just leave a little review and tell us why. Thank you and see you next time.